Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We continue our celebration of the PBS series, The Black Church, which airs tonight on our PBS station, ATL PBA. Today, a conversation about church dress. The importance of fashion as self-presentation is a serious area of study among academics as well as in the popular realm. Later this hour, we'll hear about our local multi-platform initiative, the hashtag Atlanta Sunday's Best Gallery, and tell me the story. First, During COVID-19, the inability to gather in person has had devastating consequences. The virtual realm has become our primary way of maintaining connection with one another, and arts organizations were quick to adapt. The Atlanta Jewish Film Festival has shown its trademark innovation and creativity with adapting this year's events. Here to tell us more are Kenny Blank, the executive director of AJFF, as the festival's known, and Max Leventhal, longtime theater professional, as well as board president of AJFF. Welcome back to City Lights. Lois, wonderful to be with you again, as always. And thank you for hosting, Lois. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, pleasure is mine. When did you begin adapting to the virtual platform? Lois, you know, I think we were really in a better position than most in that we had sort of the longest lead time to figure out virtual coming right off the heels of our uh, 20th anniversary festival back in February of 2020, which seems like uh, several lifetimes ago now. We really were able to take a step back, pause, look and see what our peers, uh, not only in the film festival world, but in the art sector, were doing to adopt to this very challenging environment. Uh, It's taken a lot of ingenuity, a lot of work and creativity by our professional team, by Max and our amazing board, by all our supporters in the community. 
But uh, I have been so impressed by how uh, so many arts organizations, including our film festival team, have really rallied and reimagined this whole festival experience so that we can retain those tenets that make the festival still an amazing experience and still truly a, an event and a happening and a gathering, but it is happening in a safe way, in a virtual way. And I do think, as I'm sure we'll talk about, virtual has afforded us all kinds of unique opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise have if it wasn't for this unique format that we're presenting in. I was just going to add that the long on-ramp we had today enabled us to iterate as we went. And it was an incredibly innovative process by which the staff went and looked and did their research to figure out what's the best way to provide the best experience for our audience. And I'm very proud of the way they worked and what they came up with. Max, you came up in this organization through programming. I remember you used to immerse yourself in 30 days of film viewing each June, was it? Well, it's it, the film select. I was the on the film selection committee and chaired it, and it's grown a little bit. It starts in June, it ends in November. It involves more than 200 volunteers, and we watch over 700 films to come up with the recommendations for the mix that we might end up showing. So it really is this incredible, not only film selection process, but marketing process by which we gather a lot of information so that we can discuss these films and, and with our marketing people and with the public in a way that gives them a good understanding of what they're going to see um, by doing reviews of the film from volunteers. So every film is seen by, I would say, at least 30 people. Wow. And how many will be presented? This year's lineup, we are featuring 38 feature-length films uh, from all around the world and then uh, a number of shorts programs as well. And it's really, I think this was one of the concerns coming into this year with the pandemic was how is that gonna impact the pipeline of movies available to us? A number of film festivals had decided to postpone and cancel. Uh, filmmakers were obviously shutting down production and, and distributors were holding back on a lot of content. So we held our breath for a while there, but uh, I'm pleased to report that this year's lineup is as strong as ever. We found we actually had an incredibly wealthy uh, collection of films to select from. And so the ass assortment is diverse, as strong, as compelling as ever. So uh, it, it's gonna be a great, a great lineup. And uh, in fact, a number of premieres, I wouldn't have expected the festival to have access to as many world premieres, North American premieres as we've had. Again, very strong lineup this year. We'll see what the future brings because of course, a lot of production was already in the can when the pandemic hit. We'll see how the lineup uh, takes shape in the, in the coming year. But for 2021, uh, I think audiences are going to be really impressed and delighted with the lineup. Hmm. This would be a good time to talk about the mission of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, Kenny. We hear so much about intersectionality. That's a buzzword. Would you talk about the foundation of BHAFF? Absolutely. This festival was founded 20 years ago by an amazing international organization called American Jewish Committee. And they really informed a lot of the values 
that we've carried forth as now an independent uh, 501c3 nonprofit. This festival was founded on the mission of building bridges of understanding through film, putting ourselves in other people's shoes through cinematic stories, traveling to different parts of the world, different global communities, seeing how different populations live, the challenges they experience. Certainly, many of the films that we present at the festival deal with timely issues of today of human rights, civil rights, social justice, and that, of course, continues on in our 21st edition here. I think you look at everything this country has been through um, over the past year, in particular with the pandemic, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with racial and social inequity, and of course, all of recent challenges around the election and just the breakdown in civil conversation, discourse, how we talk to each other, with each other. And the festival is all about fostering dialogue in the community. We'll still be able to do that in this uh, virtual format. The films, certainly these are not static pieces of art that sit there. People respond to them. They have reactions. They think about it and process the film internally, but they also uh, will talk to family members in their own household. They will talk to friends and neighbors about these films that they see at the festival. And then, of course, as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's a, a whole rich presentation of uh, conversation, facilitated dialogue around these movies as well. So I think if I were to answer your question with one word, it's, it's about dialogue, getting us to talk to each other once again. That has been sort of a through line of this festival for the past 20 plus years. And people who are not Jewish need not hesitate about viewing these films or taking part in the festival. Absolutely not. You, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Lois, that these films speak to all audiences, no matter your faith, your background, ethnicity, personal history. These films explore, as you said, the intersection of Jewish life with so many other communities. This year's lineup in particular, right? we have films that uh, look at LGBTQ issues and, and life experiences, African-American, of course, always international. All those tenets of the festival are still uh, very strong in our, in our virtual edition. So, and I'd also add that the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival is the largest international film festival in Atlanta, I believe. And so we are a window on the world, not only on, through a Jewish lens, but we really do reveal the world to Atlanta in new ways through film. Yeah. A dazzling opening night has been historic to the HAFF. What will this year's virtual opening night entail? Well, opening night, the film selection this year speaks to exactly what you were just talking about in terms of this idea of bringing people together from different cultural backgrounds. This time we're doing it under the umbrella of some very fun, screwball, politically incorrect comedy. I think very early on in this process, we said, given the landscape out there and all that we've been through as a community this past year, somehow we are going to find a great comedy to open the festival with, not knowing at that time what it would be. And we are so fortunate to have the North American premiere of uh, a German-Israeli comedy called Kiss Me Kosher. This film really looks at sexual diversity in terms of the central relationship is a lesbian couple. There's also the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the background. So religious differences, cultural differences, all celebrated in the best possible spirit. 
again, with some politically incorrect humor, tackling some taboo uh, topics for sure. But it's a film that definitely gives you permission to sort of laugh out loud at these things and laugh at ourselves and celebrate those things that uh, make us unique and different. Well, you can always convert, you know? <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't tell our families eh? Oh, we get the plan We get the plan I think they've noticed the ring. One of the films being screened is Atlanta, the city too busy to wait. What is this about? It is a look by uh, two filmmakers from Atlanta of how the Jewish community responded to COVID. And they realized that there needed to be some documentation of what the response would be in the community. It's the last day of Hanukkah and we get to be here together. And it's pretty strange that this is where we're at right now. This has been quite a crazy year. Each of us, like the light of the menorah, like the candle of the menorah, have the ability to brighten up the darkness, brighten up the challenge. So they followed a lot of different, a huge wide swath of the Jewish community with their cameras and put together a very charming and lovely view of our neighbors uh, and how all kinds of communities within the Jewish faith had to adapt to Zoom, had to adapt to outdoor celebrations, uh, drive-through, all kinds of things. Max Leventhal, president of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival Board, joined by Kenny Blank, AJFF executive director, We'll be back with that conversation and more of the festival highlights after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival Executive Director Kenny Blank and Board President Max Leventhal. Here, Kenny gives us a synopsis of one of the films screening at the festival, A Crime on the Bayou. This is a film that uh, this festival tackles historical episodes that unfortunately in many cases are still relevant, still with us today, films, uh, issues that we have not as a country fully addressed yet and continue to process through. And as we've talked about this ongoing battle for uh, civil rights, for combating uh, racial inequity, is very much showcased in this documentary, A Crime on the Bayou by a really wonderful uh, documentary filmmaker who we've had at the festival before, uh, Nancy Bursky. She had an amazing documentary on Sidney Lumet at the film festival a number of years ago, but her new film tackles a case from the 1960s, a young black teen in New Orleans who was uh, unjustly accused in a quarrel uh, at a high school. And of course, uh, the DA came in and, and just they used this opportunity to punish this uh, teen in a just really unjust and cruel way, a total miscarriage of justice. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, represented by um, a, a Northern Jewish attorney, Richard Sobel, who really became a, a hero in this case. And so the, the film looks at, at the case from the 1960s, but of course draws parallels to uh, the ongoing 
issues in our justice system, in our African-American communities to this day. It's holding the ferry up. It's in the early morning, huh? They had the ferry running just to take me across the river. So when we get across the river, I really figured their attention was on the killing me. To myself, I said, if something will happen, I'm going to die defending myself. All too familiar. Would you talk about the home viewing options for AJF? Absolutely. Well, one of the great things, as I said earlier about the festival this year, is we've, we've sort of leaned into virtual. Look, we, we were in a better position than many arts organizations in that our audience was already accustomed to this concept of watching movies at home. I and mean, streaming is, is nothing new. Um, the industry has been moving this way uh, for a number of years. And I'm still a classic movie going guy and that I like to go to the movie theater to watch my movies on the big screen with the state-of-the-art sound system with an audience the way the filmmakers intended. But there's no doubt there's a place for uh, home movie watching in the film world. So the festival, I think, had probably resisted the move towards virtual for a number of years because we are sort of traditionalists in that way. But obviously circumstances required us to really lean in. And so we have launched uh, what we call our virtual cinema. This is a very well-tested industry standard uh, virtual cinema platform that if you've got a smart TV at home with Roku or Apple TV or Amazon Fire, you will be able to watch these movies on your big screen at home. If you prefer to watch them on a tablet or a computer, you can certainly do that as well. But really, essentially, the whole festival lineup now will be available to watch from the comfort of home and with the convenience of watching these films where you want and when you want. Uh, we have sort of streaming windows that the films will be released in. And during that period of time, you can press play and start watching uh, when, it, when it suits you and your schedule and even pause that film and come back to it if, if you get interrupted. So I think there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of benefits um, to virtual as an at-home experience. And then it will be augmented by all the things that make a film festival a film festival. As I said earlier, the conversation around these films, we have a record number of pre-recorded Q&A conversations that audiences can access, again, at their convenience. In the normal days of the festival, you would come to the theater, you'd watch the film, and then um, in limited cases, we programming time did not allow for a lot of this, but we had um, facilitated conversations after the film for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. We have now recorded these extended conversations with filmmakers, actors, uh, academics, other expert speakers. Roughly half of the film lineup um, will have these Q&As accompanying them. And again, you, you have the flexibility to watch these on your own time immediately after the film, if you'd like. You can come back to it the next day or a week later, or even after the festival has concluded, these uh, Q&As will live on our website and also on our virtual cinema platform. Oh, that's fantastic. On Broadway was one film that grabbed my attention immediately, and I loved it. Would you talk about what went into this documentary, Kenny? Well, On Broadway, again, a very timely film. 
why we are all missing the arts and we need the arts more than ever now to kind of feed our souls during this time. And this documentary on Broadway reminds us of all the things that were great about live theater. And of course, is building anticipation for when we can hopefully return soon uh, back to the theater. This film looks back at really the, the renaissance of uh, the Broadway musical, starting back from the 1960s all the way to present day, of course, with amazing shows like Hamilton. It's like a box of chocolates for, for theater lovers. I mean, they're amazing performance clips in interviews from some of the great luminaries of the Great White Way. Again, Q&As, we've put together an amazing panel to discuss this film afterwards with um, our own Susan Booth of the Alliance Theater here in Atlanta, leading the conversation with uh, Broadway greats like Tova Feldshue, the filmmaker, Warren Jacoby, and Jeffrey Seller, the producer of Hamilton. And the Q&As allow us to kind of take the topics, the themes of these films and, and move them forward, advance the conversation. So while the documentary looks back at the heyday of Broadway, our conversation after the films takes a moment to pull out the crystal ball and look forward. What does the future of theater look like after the pandemic? So it's a great conversation. And again, an example of how we're able to bring in some amazing talent, actors, directors, who probably the pandemic has flattened the world. We can bring now in filmmakers, artists from anywhere in the world to participate in a festival. So we have some really uh, major big names from, um, from Hollywood, from uh, the film world participating in these uh, Q&A conversations. Shira Haas, amazing Israeli actress, just nominated for uh, a Golden Globe recently uh, for her role in Unorthodox. She's one of our guests for a film called Astia at the festival. Uh, Ron Rifkin, Tony Award-winning actor, part of a film called Minion. We've got some classic films in the festival, uh, The Chosen and Brighton Beach Memoirs that are celebrating anniversaries. And we have Robbie Benson and Jonathan Silverman from those films coming in. So uh, that's, again, one of the upsides of our Zoom world. We're able to pipe in these uh, amazing talents from all around the world. How did the festival in a box idea come about? Well, very early on, we said, you know, what are sort of the hallmarks of this festival, the chance to come together as a community to have this touch point with our audience? And how are we going to recreate uh, those touch points in a safe way in a reimagined virtual festival? We know we can't gather together uh, in person necessarily uh, for the festival, but we wanted to reach out to our audience to thank them to uh, give them a chance to really camp out at home with the festival and, and recreate a sense of an event. So we have this wonderful little festival in a box. If you purchase a ticket for opening night, we'll send you this little film themed gift pack, which has all kinds of wonderful little uh, goodies in it that allow you to cozy up at home. It's just a reminder that we're with you. We're connected. We're coming together through film. And you mentioned the Alliance connection. I, I have to say, Having Susan moderate that panel for on Broadway is yet another connection that reflects so beautifully on the Alliance and, and her 20 years here. Not only how Atlanta has shown on Broadway, but most recently with the prom and I think it speaks volumes about us here that it doesn't take very many degrees of separation 
in this case, one to connect us to Broadway. We've been lucky in that way, Lois, in that opportunities have come to the Alliance uh, since the success of Color Purple. Yes. To work on productions in their early stages to uh, help prepare them for the rigors of Broadway. Uh, and our audiences have been, the Alliance audiences have been able to get a sort of a sneak peek at the Alliance Theater, uh, which has been a really fortunate thing for, uh, for Atlanta. One of the innovations the Alliance had for a Christmas Carol was the drive-in. And, and Kenny, you are partaking in the drive-in opportunity on a huge scale. Would you tell us about that? We are so excited about the drive. And I think it's a great example uh, to your point. I, I salute all of our amazing arts leaders here in Atlanta. Everyone is collaborating talking to each other, comparing notes, sharing best practices, figuring out how we can stay connected with our audience. The Alliance has been a generous partner in that, our friends at the, at the opera, other theater companies, everyone's putting their heads together and, and figuring this out as we try to get through this pandemic um, and keep our organizations together, but most importantly, to keep serving our audiences. And the drive-in is such a great novel, nostalgic uh, play on getting uh, the community back together, having a communal film experience, but doing it in a safe way. The Alliance had an amazing uh, drive-in Christmas carol. And so we're, we're borrowing freely from uh, what's going, off there, going on out there with the return to drive-in. It's been very popular during the pandemic over the summer, and we're continuing on. We're offering a very unique, exclusive partnership with uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium and the Home Depot Backyard to bring drive-in to Atlanta Jewish Film Festival audiences. The first opening weekend of the festival, three nights of drive-in, including two great classic Hollywood films that are very campy and kitschy. They're the perfect films to see at drive-in because not every film is the kind of film you necessarily want to experience the drive-in, but we've got the wonderful comedy horror musical, Little Shop of Horrors at the drive-in screen and Mel Brooks' Spaceballs. And I, I just can't think of two better films to watch um, in the drive-in experience. We're gonna have food trucks there with all kinds of great bites to eat and, and, and sweet treats and snacks. It's again, done in a very social distance, safe way and some family friendly films too. I mean, I think everyone's itching to get out and just do something, have an, ex an experience together. Um, and this is a, a great way to do that against the awesome spectacular backdrop of uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Spaceballs is not silly comedy. Spaceballs is a brilliant satire by one of the greatest directors ever to emerge in film, in my not altogether humble opinion. I couldn't agree. So right. couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Lois, I will tell you, if you come watch the Spaceballs, uh, screening at the drive-in, uh, Ben Mankiewicz from Turner Classic Movies, TCM, one of our, our great partners and supporters. Uh, ben has got an amazing introduction that he has uh, recorded just for this Atlanta Jewish Film Festival screening of Spaceballs. And it tells you all of the behind the scenes story about how this film came together, how Mel Brooks had to talk to George Lucas and, and get permission to do this uh, spoof of Star Wars sort of all, again, these fun, amazing behind the scenes 
uh, accounts of how these classic Hollywood films could come together uh, in the way that only TCM can tell them. So again, one of the special extras when you come to the drive-in is the chance to hear this personalized introduction by Ben Mankiewicz. I can't wait to see that. And as we close, and I congratulate you on yet another year of outstanding programming, I must say, Kenny Blank, Max Leventhal, may the Schwartz be with you. (laughs) (laughs) And to you, Lois. Absolutely. Thank you, Lois. Max Leventhal, president of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival Board, and Kenny Blank, AJFF executive director. The Atlanta Jewish Film Festival kicks off at 7 p.m. with Kiss Me Kosher. More information about the lineup and drive-in showings will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This week on PBS stations throughout the nation, including our own ATL PBA, an extraordinary and compelling documentary from Dr. Henry Louis Gates' debut. It's called The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. This series tells a 400-year-old story of the Black Church in America, tracing and connecting its African roots to very modern-day experiences of African Americans. In addition to worship, the series shows the many roles of the church, which the Reverend Al Sharpton describes as the epicenter of black life. The culture of the black church includes music, praise dances, gospel songs, hymns, and fashion. A bonus feature to the black church has been created by my colleagues, Public Broadcasting Atlanta, multi-platform producers, Jamie Green and Brianna Carr. That feature, Tell Me the Story, is specific to Atlanta and explores the black church experience in our city. Jamie and Brianna, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. So we are all clearly immersed in PBS content, 
employed as we are here and before that as fans of PBS and NPR. How excited are you for the Black Church to debut this week? I'm very excited. I, I, first of all, this has been a love project and a passion project for Brianna and myself um, for some time now. And the fact that it's all coming together and we get to see the fruits of the labor of not just only our team, but just the community that really helps support this uh, particular project is just amazing to see. Yes, and it just means so much um, to us to know that we get this opportunity to share this beautiful world of worship, of, of faith with our colleagues, with our viewers, to just invite them into this world to get a close-up glimpse of what it is like in the Black church. It's, uh, it's very exciting to share that story and that experience with everyone. Indeed. Now, this has also meant an opportunity for local PBS stations to create community engagement projects. Please tell us about the concept of Tell Me the Story. Well, you know, Atlanta is a mecca for so many Black churches, from the small local community churches making a huge impact to the mega churches that touch so many lives. We were able to just scratch the surface of that and really engage pastors in the community, pastors who champion and outreach, pastors that um, champion and social activism. We were able to connect with the gospel recording artist Jeffrey Golden and just give them a chance to, you know, shine the light on their experience in the Black church. We were able to really hone in on the Atlanta experience. We were able to explore gospel music. We were able to explore community outreach, so social activism. The list goes on. It was just a great opportunity to engage on a local level. Jamie? You know, it's, it's just great to be able to bring a national conversation local. And we were so inspired by Henry Louis Gates's piece that you all will see shortly and soon. But to be able to tell that story locally, Atlanta, you know, Henry Louis Gates explored Ebenezer and some other churches here in Georgia. But we got to dig much deeper into that conversation, specifically even just seeing, you know, leadership roles and seeing different people that would not necessarily always be put into the limelight of leading, you know, these type of amazing congregations and their this a lovely city. And then also a little bit of the history. We have so many historical church, uh, churches here. And Brianna, like she's mentioned, you know, we only scratched the surface. There are hundreds and hundreds of churches here. And we simply couldn't tell every story, but we wanted to make sure we really touched on at least the voice of Atlanta. So from concept, to shooting footage in the field. How long did it take to gather all of this material? The conversation truly probably a while ago, it was more than a year ago that it came to us that we were hearing about this coming down the pipeline. And I think really this late fall, we really dug deep into doing the research, if I recall, around October-ish, I think it was, October, November. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And Lois, can you imagine um, doing this during the pandemic, <laughs> which was totally unexpected, but we were very blessed to get um, a response, you know, and it just it just goes to say how much the Black church means to the Black community. Like, we know how important it is to get the story out there. And the pastors responded, the, the churches responded, and I'm just so grateful for their willingness to engage with us. It was definitely a process from gathering footage, from going out filming at different locations, um, Morehouse, Friendship Baptist, um, New Birth, and then making the magic happen in post. 
<laughs> yeah, and you know, I have to add too, it was because of the pandemic, we had to use a lot of PPE. And for y'all that don't know, it's protection gear to keep us safe during this pandemic. And I mean, from shields to, to masks, you can imagine how much we've had to lug around in addition to cameras and lights and, and so forth. Yeah, people just don't realize because when we view it, it looks so, if not effortless, it sure seems like it's seamless, you know, it just flows. So hats off for all the work that's gone into this. Tell us about Sunday is Best. Yes. So hashtag Atlanta Sunday's Best is an idea that Brianna and I kind of drew up uh, when we were doing all this research and then we thought about our own personal experiences growing up in the Black church. We thought about the work and the effort and the pride that went into looking your best on Sunday. And so historically, since the inception of the Black church, and so this is like slavery after slavery and to present day, the Blacks would take their you know best clothing and preserve it for Sundays because they would want to make sure that they didn't have to wear the uniforms that they were told to wear. They were allowed to take pride into themselves. Um, and we explore that a little bit and tell me the story. We talked with particularly Reverend Wills, and he mentions that they wore their clothing with pride. And so Sunday's Best came out of that. And it's an opportunity, it's an interactive component that we will have on the website um, that allows the community in Atlanta to tell their stories because we just simply couldn't talk to everyone given the pandemic and given just the vast majority of churches here in Atlanta and Georgia as a whole. And it allows them to go online, to share their story, to share a photo, whether they be old or new, uh, wearing their Sunday's best. And it, it is a love project um, and an, a, a great uh, component to this Tell Me the Story piece. It is. That social media engagement, again, is around hashtag Atlanta Sunday's best. And it's a whole gallery you've created. Yes, it is. And to submit, um, our viewers can actually go to our website, which is wabe.org slash tell me the story. And they can not only just submit, you know, their pictures of them and that with their families or themselves or old and new photos, because we understand, uh, although a lot of us are not able to gather in the sanctuary right now, you can still dress up at home. You know, the celebration continues and take a picture and share it. And if your heart leads you, share a little bit about the church that you fellowship with and why it means so much to you. And then also take a look at everyone else's Sunday's best. So wabe.org slash tell me the story. Some years ago, the Alliance Theater presented a wonderful play, Crowns, which focused on church hats. Of course, there was much more <laughs> in the story, but that's where the play takes its title. Do you highlight the history of church hats in your outreach? I will say that it's featured in there. I, I will say that much. Uh, we don't dig that deep into the hats of the fashion in that way. We kind of just overall explore Sunday's best and just the pride in and the clothing that it takes, whether it be women or men, and down to even the children, right? Because that's an important aspect. We're raised uh, as uh, as young ones uh, in the community to take pride in how we look um, and how we present ourselves. And, you know, I read something the other day and it was so true and I laughed about it. And this uh, person was personal blogger was saying, you know, I had three clothes growing up. I had church clothes, I had play clothes, 
and I had school clothes and that's how I grew up. And so <laughs> that is an experience for many of those in the black church. And so of course the hats are part of it. As you get a little older, you know, you'll see the mothers in the church. You may see the deaconess, even see, you know, the, the pastor's first lady, you know, wearing a beautiful church hat. Again, it, it, it's all tied to the pride. It's being able to wear something that makes you just feel embellished. Um, you know, if you're going to church service, you're, you're, you're amongst your church family royalty. And uh, you want to take pride in that. And it makes you feel good. And you want to look good doing it, you know, knowing that you present the best self when you present yourself to God. And, and that's just the way that I've always thought about it and, and how I've been raised. Indeed, this is nothing superficial. This is a very important reflection of identification, of self-presentation. A couple years ago, I interviewed Andre Leon Talley, there was a documentary about the American fashion journalist who became creative director and editor-at-large of Vogue magazine. And he cites his interest in fashion and his respect for it from when he was a little boy, seeing how his mother and grandmother dressed for church. Absolutely. That makes me think about my childhood. My mom is a pastor. And of course, you know, before I even knew that Sunday's Best was the name of the tradition, it was just embedded into our identity to make sure we we look as if we're going before a king. We're going into the house of the Lord. It is ingrained in, in my identity. And although things have evolved, now you go to a lot of churches, you don't see as, as much of the suits and the hats is now and a lot of churches have become contemporary, but it's still, it's a mindset. It is definitely a mindset. It's a, it's a posture of gratitude, like, Lord, thank you for allowing me to make it to another Sunday. And then also it's, it's a celebration, like imagine being invited to a party by someone very significant. You're going to put on your very best because you know you're going before them, you know. So it, it's, it's a posture, it's an attitude, it's something that is definitely ingrained in, in who I am. And it's, it seeps into every area of my life on how, how I present myself. Um, representing my faith. PBA multi-platform producers, Brianna Carr and Jamie Green. The hashtag Atlanta Sunday's Best Gallery is featured on wabe.org slash tell me the story. You can see the black church. This is our story. This is our song. Um, our PBS station, PBA, at 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. You're listening to City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Food and wine tours, archaeological digs, wild animal safaris, camping and outdoors trips... Many types of travel are available to us. For Megan Taylor Morrison, dance has been her passport to exploring other places. Her book, Dance Adventures, is a collection of stories about dancing abroad. She joins us now via Zoom. Megan, welcome to City Lights. 
Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Would you talk about the reasons you gave for publishing a book about dance travel at this particular time? You know, dance itself is a great unifying art form. This project started two years ago, and at the time, I had just closed my company that did cultural immersion through the arts and dancing. And I wanted some way to continue this mission and to share with people all over the world about how dancing abroad can invite us into these incredible experiences of cross-cultural friendships and unexpected moments and a better understanding of local cultures and local people. And it became, after the death of George Floyd, it really became an opportunity to enter into a world of equitable editing and make sure that this was a book and a project that truly was unifying, that we brought in voices from people of all different backgrounds. You acknowledge that travel implies privilege and that most travel publications have too few BIPOC contributors. How is this book different? Well, when I began to collect stories for this book, I realized that the majority of people I'd reached out to were white. I myself am white, and it happened that those were the majority of people in my network. And I think that as we go and launch projects such as this, we really have to consider what our biases are and who we know and who we might ask by default to participate in something. And so I decided that I was going to go beyond my typical network and make sure that at least 50% of contributors to this book were from BIPOC communities. So I reached out to people from a whole variety of backgrounds. And in the end, we did end up with just about 50% of contributors representing the BIPOC communities. And it truly feels like a book I'm proud to publish that serves the purpose of uniting people through dance and gets to share stories from people with many, many different viewpoints so that we can enjoy all those different perspectives and how rich they are. How is the book divided? The book is divided into four sections, and the first is Roots, which includes stories from people about going to a place that's connected to their family or to their ancestors to discover more about who they are. Stories in that section include um, a story by Makeda Kumasi, who teaches West African dance at UC Riverside, and she goes to Senegal for the first time to the place where her ancestors were born to learn dancing, or a story from Ted Samuel, whose parents were born in Southern India, and he goes there to learn a South Indian folk dance and gets to therefore learn more about his uh, his parents' culture and really about the culture that he grew up in within his immediate family. The second section is all about finding community. And it's always been amazing to me how people who are dancers can go abroad and find community immediately. They can go from having no friends to having an abundance of friends because they're willing to go out and dance and therefore play and connect with people. The third section is around unexpected experiences. So times when people were willing to dance, whether or not they were good dancers, some of our contributors are just beginners at dance, but because they were willing to get out there and dance and have this experience in another country, these unusual opportunities arose that they weren't sure they ever could have accessed otherwise. 
And the final part of the book is on personal development, ways that dancing abroad helped people heal old traumas, learn more about themselves, build confidence, embrace body positivity, and more. In part one, I was especially intrigued with the Indian-American Ted Samuels story. He went to the south of India to immerse himself in a culture that he described as both inborn and yet foreign. What did Karagatram enable Ted to do? I loved that story also. And as Ted has described it to me, Karagatram is this dance that seems like it was it took advantage of all the best parts of his personality and allowed him to connect to his roots in a way that felt so genuine. He says that Karagatam took advantage of his buffoonish stage presence, <laughs> which I loved because, you know, it, a lot of different dances pull forth different parts of us, but for him that felt most authentic. And he was able to um, connect with a renowned performer who taught him the dance. He was able to get to know the arts of South India. And he ended up traveling and performing internationally this dance. So he actually was able to become a cultural ambassador of sorts. Yeah, this is from the Tamil region where his family came from. Would you describe the dance? It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's a dance where performers are often doing feats and stunts that might require, in, in Ted's case, balancing a heavy pot on his head while dancing. And at one point, balancing the pot while also rolling around on the floor and tying a sari, which I have never seen Ted do, but it is on my bucket list to watch him do this one day. They often sometimes involve ladders or literal pins and needles. Uh, and it's also one of the only South Indian performing arts that can include cross-dressing. So that is another interesting aspect of Karagatam. Yeah. And he wrote that performing the dance was more about state of mind than perfecting technique. I thought that was fascinating. Yes, and a perfect example about how dancing is so much more about just movements. It's about seeing who we are and where we can grow as people and performers, because ultimately it was about releasing perfectionism, trusting himself and believing that he would be able to dance. And those are lessons that don't just serve us as dancers, they serve us as people. Yeah. The Nigerian-born Damilare Adeyeri, in part two, he contributed an essay on his time spent in Hungary. How did an African-born dancer find community in that very white European nation? Yes, and Damilare said that dance was his all-access pass to community. So for him, it was such a meaningful way to go and learn about another culture. And he took uh, took part in a master's program called Mundus that takes students to four different countries where they get to study dance anthropology in each of those European countries. 
And so his time with that master's program was incredibly meaningful for him. And the time in Hungary was especially meaningful because he got to go so deep and go beyond just the dances that they were learning to learning more dances from the locals and then having a chance to actually try out his dances at a at a social dance where they invited people not just from Hungary, but from across the border in Romania as you and I both learned by reading this book, there is some crossover between the performing arts in Hungary and Romania. So it was really, for him, it was a a way to get to know the locals, share in their culture, and get to celebrate them and enjoy seeing them react to him learning their dances. He said to me that people were so excited when they saw that he could do some of these traditional dances and they would always pull him aside and chat with him and had lots of questions about where he was from and how he had learned. He is a marvelous writer as well as dancer, I imagine. And I could see how comprehensive his approach to dance is, you know, taking in anthropology geography, and of course, the art of dance in in what he does. But it's just a marvelous essay. It is. And it really shows you how he brought in so many different ways of writing, because you can see his background as an academic. You can see that he has experience as a dance anthropologist. And you can also see the short story first person narrative piece of it. And it's really exciting when those things come together to produce something that's educational and engaging and inspiring. Very well put. Ultimately, how does this book demonstrate that dance is stronger than any cultural divide? I believe that dance shows the play and wonder and connection that's inherent in all human beings, maybe better than anything else on the planet. And it's that uniting thread that I believe is the reason that dance is bigger than any cultural divide. When you can really connect with that quality and that essence of other people, it doesn't matter that you don't speak the same language, it doesn't matter that you were born in different places or had different experiences. It's truly about presence and being in the moment and sharing in something really wonderful with others. Author Megan Taylor Morrison. Her book, Dance Adventures, True Stories About Dancing Abroad, is available now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.